Let's just read our section, please. Chapter 14, and it's verses, verse 6. Actually, largely our consideration today will be on this first angel. But let's read verses 6 down to verse 10. Black picture, remember? Black picture. Picture of the storm clouds of coming judgment. And it's quite horrifying. In the middle of these verses, you see the three angels, one after the other, flying through the heavens. It's a picture book. Please keep this in mind. Revelation gives us pictures. And in those pictures, there are timeless principles, not just limited to a particular event or point in time, but principles which tell us the character of God, principles that tell us the glory of the Lord Jesus, Principles and truths that open before us the riches and splendor of heaven. And also revealing to us the character of sin, the methods of Satan, and the unspeakable evil nature of evil. And you can take those principles and you can see them applied through all periods of time. In their exactness and detail, we are not touching. We are taking the truths and the principles and realizing the day in which we live, what God is doing, what Satan would seek to do. Realizing that many antichrists have already gone into the world. Yes, there will be that one final event, but we're looking at the word of God to bless and help and to give us understanding in our day. The mystery of iniquity, it's already working. And the truths portrayed here are, in a sense, almost, well, timeless they are. They're timeless. And the message of these angels in verses 6 to 10 are as applicable today as they have been in the past or will be in the future. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It's a whosoever. It's for everyone. It's across the board, saying with a loud voice, Fear God. Give glory to him. The hour of his judgment is come. Worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of the waters. There followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. It's a solemn reading, isn't it? And may God just really sober us in a sense. But at the same time, give us a sense of wonder at the gospel that's being preached right in the forefront of the text of the scripture that we have read. 
and then fill us with a wonder of the message of the gospel. It's a wonderful message to have in our hands. It'll be a wonderful message in the day to come. It's been a wonderful message in the day that's past. And it's a wonderful message that we have in our hands at the present time. Against this dark scene of judgment, you get the first light shining as we've already seen. And it's the, the angel, he's got the everlasting gospel to preach. And you see, in the, in the, with judgment just ready to fall in our picture, there's the offer of God, and it's an offer of mercy. The gospel brings relief and light, salvation in the darkness. And we see that God is waiting rather to show mercy and to offer mercy long before he comes down in judgment. We saw that last week in clarity. Right through scripture it's been the same. God waited in the days of Noah. And look how long he waited for all those years while the ark was being prepared. A place of safety was there. A message of righteousness was being preached by Noah. And the door in the ark was open right up to the last point, And they could have gone in and been safe. For God is a God who is rich in mercy. And we've touched a little on that in our meditation this morning. And it's the same today as it was in the days of Noah. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this world and they crucified and they slew him 2,000 years ago. And God has not judged the world yet. Why has he not judged the world yet? Is he slack concerning his promise? Doesn't he keep his word? Oh no, that's not so. But he's long-suffering. You see? The God of patience. The God who would fain show mercy first and would wait patiently, long-sufferingly for man to turn and accept the offer of the gospel, which is an offer of mercy, mercy with everlasting and eternal blessings. What does the old hymn say? I remember as a child we used to sing it. God waits in grace with hands outstretched to bless. Glad news from heaven. Mercy dispensed. In perfect righteousness, sinners forgiven. Now that's the point of why this light of the gospel shines forward against this dark, dark background. And it's an everlasting gospel because it comes from the everlasting God bringing an everlasting salvation. With it, that everlasting, that eternal redemption and the blessings of an everlasting inheritance and the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Bringing what? Everlasting life. Yes. It's a, a blessing based on an everlasting covenant of the precious blood of Christ. And it's up, it was initiated by one who is the priest acting on our behalf. It is maintained, this salvation, by that same priest offering, uh, acting on our behalf. And it will be so right into the eternal situation. For he's got the everlasting priesthood. And he has administered an everlasting blessing by the one sacrifice of sin forever, a sacrifice of everlasting blessing, everlasting value, bringing to us that everlasting blessing. So as we saw, there's nothing temporary about the gospel. Nothing temporary about the blessings of God's salvation. Nothing at all. And this is one of the lovely parts of Scripture to realize. Just, just get a grip this morning before we move too far on the wonder of the message of the gospel. And what we've got before us is one of the loveliest descriptions of it. Everlasting gospel. There's, there's more than one descriptors in the, in the Scripture about the gospel. And each of them give us just a, a, a particular emphasis 
is a chink of light on the glory of the message that has come from the heart of God, centered on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a thing in the Gospels called the Gospel of the Kingdom. Remember when the Lord Jesus started to preach? He preached the Gospel of the Kingdom. And then you go into the Acts of the Apostles and you see blessings spreading out to the Gentiles and then there's a Gospel of the Grace of God. And then you go into Roman Epistle and the Roman Epistle is a complete exposition and setting forth of what the Gospel is. It covers every situation and age. Old Testament, New Testament, Early church, present church, times yet to come. It's all in the book of Romans. The Apostle St. Paul says there that it's the gospel of God. Then he says it's the gospel of Christ. Then he goes to Ephesians and he says the gospel of peace. We've touched that this morning. And then you can go into the other epistle, and I think it's Thessalonians, the gospel of your salvation. And each description is telling us something more and more about this message and the wonders which it contains and the glory which it unfolds. It is the gospel of the kingdom. Why? Because there is a God who reigns. And a soul who is saved, no matter when it is, they are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son from the reign and rule of Satan and the power of sin, under the beneficence and the blessings of the kingdom of God. It's a gospel of the grace of God, because it tells us all about a God who would bring blessings down upon a sinner that were not deserved. And he doesn't give them just one and a little bit and make us wait for the next. Of his fullness do we receive grace upon Grace, You know, it just keeps on coming. You think you've come to an end of it, but no, there's more. And there's mercies that are renewed every morning. And then he says it's the gospel of God because that's who it came from. This tremendous message of the forgiveness of our sins. This tremendous message of the removal of guilt. Of the clothing with the righteousness of Christ. Of the certainty of heaven of and a hope of a home in that eternal day. That message comes from the God himself. The gospel of God, who it comes from. The gospel of Christ, that's who it's all about. The gospel is not all about the sinner, it's all about the saviour. Don't get it back to front. It's all about him and his work and what he can offer. It's the gospel of peace because that tells us what has been made by the Lord Jesus Christ about the question of sin in the atoning sacrifice. Peace has been made with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the sinner who embraces the gospel, embraces and knows that meaning of peace with God. My sins, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins not in part but the whole. He's nailed them to the cross and I bear them no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. Peace flows, forever flows through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel of our salvation for that's what it brings. Gospel of the kingdom, God reigns, brings us under his reign. Gospel of the grace of God, a God who would give blessings which we do not deserve. The gospel of God, who it comes from, the gospel of Christ, who it's all about, the gospel of peace, what has been made, the gospel of your salvation, the blessings that it brings. And you can see every little bit gives you another insight into the meaning of the message which God has prepared for sinful mankind. Now, 
it, it can be confusing sometimes, and I used to find it quite confusing, but I tend to, I tend to be rather simplistic in my thinking. Many would take all those titles of the gospel and they say, well, that gospel is preached at that particular time of God's dealings and this gospel is preached at the other particular time of God's dealings and this gospel is preached to this group of people and this gospel is preached to that group of people. And eventually I sat down and scratched my head till I got splinters and I thought, well, <laughs> I mean, how many gospels are there? How many? And then you go, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is only one saviour. There is only one sacrifice for sins. There is only one Calvary. There is only one precious blood that was shed. And there's only one problem confronting mankind. One real problem. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. Whether you lived in the Old Testament days or whether you lived in the early church, whether you're living today, whether you're living in the future, whatever that might be in those terrible days that are yet ahead of us still, there's still the same problem. It's the problem of sin. There is one solution. There is one answer. There is one gospel. So you've heard all those titles. They may apply it more so at one time than at another. Yes, but it's the same message from the same God based on the same sacrifice of the same saviour. And the angel goes out with the everlasting gospel and it's incredible because you can just see how it fits the setting of the picture that's painted for us in Revelation. I mean, judgment's going to come. Nothing's going to last. The world is going to be destroyed by the wrath of God and sinners are going to be swept away into eternal damnation. And everything's going to be moved and shaken up and coming to an end. Gospel And the angel comes out and says, I've got, a, I've got a gospel that tells you about things that last, an everlasting God and an everlasting inheritance and an everlasting salvation. See, that, see the contrast? It's very beautiful against that coming judgment. Fellow Christian, we are living in evil days. Sin is rising up like a flood. Satan is incredibly busy. The world is heading fast for judgment, the judgment of God. He will not tarry ultimately. And in days such as now, when time is running out and the shades of darkness are coming over the land with such ferocity, behind the darkness of evil lies the wrath of God. In days like that, when time is running out and judgment is nigh and sin is on the rampage, in days like that, we need, like this angel of old, to preach the truth of an everlasting kingdom and of an everlasting king and of an everlasting salvation. And to tell them, fear God, glorify God, worship God, and remember God is the creator. That's the message given particularly in the, the, the words of the first angel that we read about. And I want you to look at him. Let's read it again in verse 6. I saw another angel fly in the midst of the heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, one, fear God, two, glorify him, three, worship him, four, the hour of his judgment is come. Fear God, glorify God, worship God. The hour of judgment is right in the background. And these are the four things which the society as depicted here in Revelation by these pictures 
clearly have not been doing, you can see that with the beast and the false prophets and so on, they've not been doing it. And, you know, it's the four things that sinful man refuses to do. Man as sinner, and we lost in our sins were exactly the same. We would not fear God, we did not glorify God, we did not worship God, nor did we remember the truth of the Creator God. Because the minute you remember the truth of a Creator God, He's got rights over you. He's greater than you. He was the originator of you, and you're forced to bow the knee before Him. There's an authority well and truly above you. And in today's world, when they deny the existence of Creator God, it's right to preach God of creation. Realize your Creator. Because the Scripture says, Thy Creator is thy Redeemer, O Israel. If you have no knowledge of Creator God or no acknowledgement of Creator God, you will never find the Redeemer God. It's essential truth bound together in the one bundle. And here we have these four things. The four things that sinful man refuses to do. Let me take you through them. What does he say there? Fear God, for the hour of his judgment is come. What does Romans 3 say? There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, men in the days described previously, men in the day, women in the day in which we live, us once lost in our sin, refusing to fear God, Sinning with impunity, flaunting it in the face of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They sin as though it's your right to do it and to make your own choice. And only do it and like doing it, but also like those who also do it. That's the society in which we live. And it's to stand in stark contrast to the believer, to the Christian, who actually, actually spends their life living in the fear of God. I want to ask you that, this question. I want to just put that to you this morning. Do you live your life in the fear of God? You say, what do you mean? I'm frightened of him all the time, and I, I quake in fear and see him as uh, some great despot and sitting on a throne judging me and criticizing me. That's not what we mean. But in today's world, we need to be reminded that we need to fear God in a right way, an absolutely right way. What does it mean? To fear God really means to take him and to make him the central point of your entire world. Take God, put him right in the middle, in the center point of the equation of your life. Take God and make him the central point of your entire world view and make him the center point of the entire practice of your daily life. Move every day and hear that voice saying, but God, but God. See it in the moments of your weakness or your despair or your need, but God. See it in the moments of your temptation to sin, but God, living in the fear of God, prevents you from sin, protects you from Satan, lifts you out of yourself and focuses you where where your focus belongs, where God himself is at the center point of the equation of your life, 
of your entire outlook and thinking and world view. When man chooses to live without the fear of God, he actually pretends that God is not. I mean, that's really what happens with sin, is a pretending that God is not. There's no point of reckoning, you see. There's no point of accountability. See, the thing that kept that young man Joseph, remember, with Potiphar's wife, when he was just, you know, he was there. Everything was in front of him. And the pull of sin must have been within him. And he says, how can he do this great evil thing and sin against my God? What was it? But God. See, the fear of God was before his eyes and it protected him. And what happens today is that's totally removed and man behaves as though God is not. They pretend he is not. And they don't want him in their thinking. They don't want him in the equation of their life. They don't want him in their society. They don't want him in any plans they ever make or any intentions they ever have. They do not live in the fear of God. What does Stephen Charnock say about the believer? And he says it very beautifully. They este- the believer, the Christian, esteems the smiles and frowns of God to be of greater value than the smiles and frowns of men or the desires they may have of and for themselves. That's lovely. That's right, you know. You're looking above and you are seeking his smile and you are careful and fearing his frown. It's not fear in the sense of fright, but the last thing you want to do is to grieve the Lord. Isn't that right? We spent that time last week, didn't we, about those who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. And they're, they're just focused on him completely. Their minds are full of him. Their eyes are fixed on him. Their feet, they're following him. Their lips, they're praising him. The hands, they're serving him. And the last thing you want to do is to what? To grieve him. Why? Because you love him. That's why. The true Christian loves the Lord with a love that's been begotten of God and placed within them. So there it is, number one, the first message, fear God. My word, you, you feel as though you want to run up the main street sometimes with that placard, you know, fear God, fear God, fear God. You know, it wasn't that when I was young, that's exactly what they used to do. The old man would walk around with a sandwich board, you know, fear God on one end and repent and believe the gospel on the other side. Oh, we're far too sophisticated now in today's world. I mean, let's face it, are they going to listen to that sort of rubbish? You just say what God says. To an evil world, fear God. To yourself and myself in an evil world, Live your life in the fear of God. Then it says, and glorify him. That's the next one. Fear him, glorify him. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 1 teaches us one thing, very powerfully. Not just one thing, but this one thing very powerfully. If a man does anything at all, he glorifies himself. When they knew God, they glorified him him not as God, right? They did not lift him up. That's what it is. They didn't put him above themselves in his right place. Indeed, they prefer to have a God that they had made with their own hands and were prepared to bow down to that because then they've got a God who they've got control over who is the kind of God they want to have and is the product of their own hands, so actually they stay in control and still keep the glory for themselves. Right? 
Glorify God means put him in his rightful place. These are sorts of words we use a lot, glory and glorify, and you sort of can lose the sense of the meaning of the word sometimes. I had a look a little more deeply at it, and the root meaning of the word glorify, and this is very helpful. If you go to the Old Testament, into the Hebrew, the root word means weight or weighty. And it's used particularly in relation to the value of a gold coin. What value did that gold coin have? It was determined by its weight. So the idea in glorify, firstly, is that there's value. There is worth. Right. You go to the New Testament to the Greek word, and the root word, the, the, it has a slightly, what I thought at first was puzzling. It has the meaning of opinion. Opinion. But if you put the two together, you've got exactly what glorify means. I mean, to glorify God means it's the value we, in our opinion, assign to God in all of our life. Because you may glorify him by standing up this morning or sitting in your seat this morning and opening your heart in worship and you're, you're giving him the place that's rightfully his. You're acknowledging his weight his value and his worth, and you're expressing your opinion about him. But worship isn't just when you've got your eyes tight shut or wide open or your hands up in the air or you're sitting down or standing up. That's not what it's all That's not entirely what it's all about. Because it's in every aspect of your life, isn't it? In every aspect of your life, you're giving him the right place. You're realizing the value and the worth of who he is. And in your opinion and behavior, he comes first goes very much along the line of the fearing of God, centering your focus, and then you've got the glorifying of God, giving him, in your opinion and behavior, assigning to him the rightful place that he should have and the worth that is in him seen in our life. See, man, when man sins, he gives no thought, value or weight to God or to his word or to his holiness. Do you realize that? That's why you say glorify God. Because as long as we live in sinfulness, we give no thought to the value, to the weight, to God, or to his word, or to his holiness. I think that's very powerful. And it says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. Why? Because they wanted to sin. That's why. And the angel goes out there. He says, I've got an everlasting gospel to preach to you, but wait a minute, I've got something to say to you before I preach it. Now, you need to understand that. This isn't the everlasting gospel we're getting. It's the, it's the angel speaking who's got the everlasting gospel. He's confronting people with their sin, which means they will feel their need, and then they will listen to the gospel because they'll have a need. Born into their hearts by the power of God's Holy Spirit, the conviction of their sin, and it's a convicted sinner that embraces with gladness the salvation message of the gospel and realize they have a burden that needs to be lifted. They have a God before whom they must stand. They have a heaven to win and a hell to shun. As old-fashioned as that, it's still true. Now he says, worship him, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And you know, that's not what they do. It says quite clearly, doesn't it? They worship and serve the creature more than the creator. 
That's Romans 1. And when you say worshipping the creature, really and truly, man worships himself. I went to a church some time back and they took up worship and the man was trying to illustrate out the front the objects we worship and he had a football shirt and he had a surfboard and and then he had a plate of food and all the things he worshipped. And I got up to speak after him and I didn't say this because I thought it might be a bit rude. I wanted to say, you know, mister, you missed out the most important thing on that table that we worship? Picture of yourself. You think that's true? (laughs) Picture of yourself. We worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And it's all true. We worship creation. We're wrapped in environmentalism. Not that we shouldn't look after the earth. But we're wrapped in it to the point where the sinister motive behind it is to make it into our God and worship the creation rather than the creator. You know, and worship ourselves. What is it? Man thinks he's a self-made creature. And he worships his creator. It's dead right. Dead right. And in sin, before your eyes are open, you don't understand the meaning of the creator God. So what does it mean to worship? Have you thought about this? You know, we say a lot of things. We sing a lot of things. We get all sort of spooked up and get into some sort of ecstasy and this is worship or we make a whole lot of noise and this is worship, so on and so on. Just let me just pare it away a bit. And just get to a simple, first of all, a fairly simple, very simple, but it has the point in it. To worship God is to bow down before his majestic glory and bring him the honor and praise that is, that belongs to him alone. You get that? Bow down before his majestic glory And bring him the honor and praise that belongs to him alone. See, you're bowing down. You're putting self, yourself in the rightful place. You feel that before God, that you are here and he ever, ever is there. He is the giver. You've just been the receiver. He is the one who has paid it all in Jesus Christ. You've been the one that's just taken it all in the forgiveness of your sins. He owes you nothing really. You owe him everything absolutely. And that realization brings you to a point of worship where you're putting God in his rightful place. You're exalting him and lifting him up. And at the same time, you're realizing what you deserved and who you are and, and you're putting yourself down and down. And as you're down, as you're down there worshiping, as it were, him up there, you suddenly realize the blessings that he's brought to you whereby as a guilty sinner, he brought you to himself. And he gave you a relationship with himself. And he purposes to have a home above for you with himself. And in the last trials of life and the journey of life, he deigns to come and make his abode with you. And you say, well, he's just the same as I am. He's my mate and I'll talk to him how I like. And you can't do that when you're worshipping. You just can't do it. Because you realise everything about him is so gracious so far above you. Everything you have got is only because that he's a merciful God and you never deserved it. And you live daily in the appreciation of who God is and what he's done. And the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it never leaves you. Never leaves you. This is living in the fear of God. This is, this is glorifying God. And this is now worshipping God. 
We've got the simple one. Bow down before his majestic glory and bring him the honor and praise that belongs to him alone. Now, go a bit further here, and I will go a bit further. And somewhere I found this written, so I don't know quite where, but there it is. Bow down before his majestic glory. And through Jesus Christ, you can't approach God any other way. You can't go in your own name. You can't go in your own worth. You can't go full of yourself. You go through the name, through the work, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he opened the doorway of heaven. He took us into the presence of God. He's the high priest who went within the veil with his own precious blood that was shed and made a way open for us to go with holy boldness into the very presence of God himself. So you're bowing down before his majestic glory and through Jesus Christ and according to scriptures. You know, to worship isn't to say things about God that we've just made up in our own minds or maybe even quite contrary to what the Bible says about him. So it is according to the scriptures. The word of God reveals what God is like. And when you embrace the gospel, you're embracing the message of God. You're embracing the word of God and your heart is open to grasp and to understand and learn more and more about God. So in your worship, as you come through the Lord Jesus Christ, you're according to the scriptures and it's in spirit and in truth. It's not worked up, steamed up or made up. It's within the consciousness of your own soul. You have the sense of the presence of God. In truth, in reality, like Isaiah of old, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, holy, 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 and the pillars shake and the train fills the temple, the incense and the smoke. And he falls down, he says, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips, he says. That's me. Look at God in all his glory. That's a worshipper. That's a worshipper. says, in worshipping him in spirit and in truth, then you bring him the honour and the praise that belongs to him alone. Now, says the angel, he comes out, as it were, against the blackening sky of coming judgment. That's the picture you've got here. He says, I've got hope for you. I've got a message of mercy for you. I've got a message that will bring you to eternal realities. An everlasting gospel is what I've got for you, he says. But before I even tell you a word about what it says, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. You need to fear God. You need to glorify God. You need to worship God. Because I'm telling you now, he says, judgment is coming. That's what he says. Fellow Christian, we're losing a bit of the sense of the the wrath of God and the judgment of God. We will deal with that as we move through here in the book later. But if you realize what lies ahead for a guilty world and for a guilty sinners, the wrath that you and I have escaped, but the reality of what still remains for those who don't know Christ as Savior, I tell you what, it would inflame you with a passion because once you've gripped the meaning of an everlasting gospel, the gospel of the grace of God, the kingdom of God, the gospel of peace, the eternal message of an eternal salvation, you see that that and that alone, and in that and in that alone, lies the answer to the need of a guilty world. There is only one thing that can deliver a soul. There is only one thing that can deliver a guilty world. That is the power of God in the gospel of God. 
Paul says, I am not ashamed of it. It is the power of God unto salvation. You want to see the world changed? Well, we'll do it by agitation. We'll do it by politics. You'll never change a thing until you change the nature of man. The only thing that will do that is the preaching of the gospel. That's really one of the most powerful messages from here. With judgment coming, what are we going to do? Rearrange those who rule. Capture that beast or number one or beast number two and rip his head off or something. Or get the woman Babylon cleaned out or something. No. He says, you just tell them what's going to come and you preach to them the gospel for therein lies the power of God unto salvation. Now look, fellow Christian, just, just think about what we've done. Just think about it. Do you know what we've actually done? Do you know what we've actually done in reading this, in this little picture, looking at this section of the picture of the book of Revelation? We've actually discovered or read of a biblical way of presenting the gospel. Particularly when the crescendo of evil is reaching screaming pitch and time is running out. The order presented here address the issue of sin. Warn of judgment to come, then tell them about an eternal salvation. That's the, that's the ordering of God, you know. Sorry, but it is. <laughs> I mean, we used to be taught the issue with three hours in the gospel, and I don't care what your theological persuasion is, the three hours of the gospel still stand, right? What do you preach first? Man's ruin. What do you preach second? God's remedy. What do you tell them at the end of it all? Man's responsibility. Go and get saved and embrace the gospel. That's what, yes, what you're told to preach, and you're told to preach to the whosoever will. Tell them they can come. Tell them about their ruin, lost in sin. No one who did, who did not realize their ruinous state as bankrupt before God, guilty sinners, ever really turned and embraced the meaning of a savior, salvation, and the forgiveness of their sins. And sadly today, more and more we see, deciding to become a Christian with no sense of guilt or sin. Why? Somebody never said, fear God. Somebody never said, glorify God. Somebody never said, worship God. Somebody never told them judgment was coming. And then read on down the chapter in the terrible end of those that are damned for all eternity. This is all true. This is the word of God, man's ruin, God's remedy in Christ. The blood of his cross, the message of Calvary, the story of salvation through Jesus' precious blood. And then finally, the responsibility. Now, look, what I've said to you is biblical. It's not my opinion. If it is, just toss it out the window. Right, it's not worth anything. I'm not giving some simple how-tos. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. That's all I'm here for is to say what the Bible says. No, not to put my skew on it or my opinion on it, certainly to apply it. But I want to say it again. Read it in the book for yourself. But do you realize this is exactly how the apostles preached the gospel? Have you ever thought about that? How do we preach the gospel? What's the message we should take? How should we approach it? Well, it's as plain as... I was going to say the nose on your face if we read our Bibles. And the reason I say that is... Well, when the, the gospel was first preached for the first time after the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you carefully, you notice what I said. Preached for the first time after the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. P Peter stands up and you're going to say, well, on the day of Pentecost, and you say, well, Peter, what are you going to say for yourself now about all this sort of strange business that's happened? And he just stands there and he says, 
about the Lord Jesus, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and signs and wonders which you, God did by him in the midst of you, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and have slain. And he gets to the end of his message that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And you say, well, sure, I'll go for it, Peter. That's the way to turn the congregation off. You know, you'll soon lose your crowds that are gathered around to hear you. <laughs> but you know what it says? They were pricked in the heart. They were cut to the heart. God used that truth of sin to convict them of their need. Cut to the heart. And 3,000 people were saved that day. They cried out in fear. What must I do to be saved? You know, what shall we do, they said. He said, you repent. That's what you need to do and believe the gospel. See, it's going all, we're going all astray now. We're not, we're not emphasizing these truths of sin, of coming judgment, of the claims of God over the, and the rights of God over the soul of man. And people don't cry out, cut to the heart. It's the reality in this, the conviction of sin, the work of the law of God on the heart of a soul of a man, convicting them of sin. 3,000 say, well, Peter, you did pretty well that time, but the next time you preach, you'll have to soften the message up a bit. Remember? That's what you think, wouldn't it? That's what we get told today. You've got to learn how to relate to our congregation and to speak in a culturally accepted manner and to realize that, you know, people have a sense of worth and they need to tell them their self-worth and how valuable they are. He gets up the second time round and he preaches at the gate to the beautiful temple. And what does he say? You denied the Holy One and just and desired a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the Prince of Life. And we're here to tell you God raised him from the dead and we are the witnesses. You say, well, that's the end of that. He just blew another sermon. <laughs> 5,000 got saved. God uses the message of the gospel preached truthfully, carefully, yes. Compassionately, yes. But fully and truthfully. And we have to remind ourselves in today's world it completely... It it includes the message of the seriousness of sin and the certainty of final judgment. Mind you, you'd never preach hell without a tear in your voice. And if you can't preach with a tear in your voice when you preach hell, don't preach it. Because it's not gripped you. The horror, the absolute horror of what it means to be lost. It goes on and on and with this I'll close. Later on, it's Paul's turn to preach after Peter, and you think, well, Paul was a very intelligent man. He wasn't a fisherman. I mean, Paul's this sort of man's very intellectual. And what's he going to tell people when he climbs up there on Mars Hill, just near Athens, and he's surrounded by pagan society, just like us today. We're going back to a pagan society, all right? And not only that, but all the, all the philosophers were there, you know? They were all full of philosophers. You know, everybody had their own ideas about the future and about life and the great minds and the great thinkers all muddled in together. It's just like today, voices all over the place. Well, Paul, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to preach to you about a God you don't know. Oh, now wait a minute, Paul. There's a whole lot of deities around here and there's lots of them and everybody loves this one or likes that one, you know? No, he says, I'm going to tell you about an altar I saw to the unknown God. And he says, you're ignorant you're talking about a God that made the world and all things therein. That's the God you don't know. The God you don't know is a creator God. What did the angel say? Fear him. 
Glorify Him, worship Him, the maker of the heavens and the earth. He's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needs something. He is the one who is in total control of the rise and fall of all nations, their bounds and their habitations. Once more, he says, I want you to understand that you've been worshipping creatures. You've been worshipping gods of stone. But God has now ceased to ignore your sin. When you were ignorant, God winked at it. But I want you to understand that he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. See that? Same story, same message. First time up, out he goes and he declares, create a God. That's what he declares. Worship that God. That's what he declares. The maker of heaven and earth, who has appointed a time when the man who died on Calvary for guilty sinners will come back and be sitting on a throne and he'll move in absolute judgment. And you know something else as we close there? When the angel preached and brought his message across those darkened skies, he cried with a loud voice. Loud voice, he cried with. In other words, there's absolute authority in it. There's authority in the preaching of the gospel. There's authority in today's world declaring God's word, God's truth. God uses it. God is present in his word. The power of God unto salvation lies in the message of the gospel. Let's go away rejoicing that the Lord ever saved us. And just wanting to know more about him to glorify him. More about his gospel to rejoice in the blessings of it. And to be gripped with a desire to tell it abroad. Tell it around. Let it abound that Christ himself, God himself in Christ, receives sinful men. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed again this morning, blessed with fellowship with one another, blessed with fellowship with the Lord, grateful that we've gathered around the table in fellowship with one another and with him, blessed in the fellowship of the word of God. Oh God, we come with just a, a fresh sense of how much we've been forgiven. Because in so many ways, Lord, we've got a fresh sense of our own failure and weakness. And it makes us the more grateful for a God who saved us, and who gave his Son to be a sacrifice for our sins. We look above, beyond this troubled scene of world of strife. We lay hold upon things that are unseen, but they're eternal. And they're a blessing for us. They're in the future as our glorious hope. And may we know that blessing as we move into the week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God. And the fellowship of the Holy Ghost. O oh Lord, let us know it, we pray. In that precious name. Amen.